Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Game over. Beijing calls online gaming spiritual opium. Tencent shares tumble. China's COVID crackdown. Wuhan now testing 11 million people. And Biles Beans. The US gymnast is back, wins a bronze and a standing ovation. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move a Day, where we focus on the Bulls, the Bears and Biles. Yes, we'll take you live to Tokyo, as I mentioned, for Simone Biles' return to the balance beam and a bronze medal that's worth its weight in gold, and then some, I think. In the meantime, let the games begin in the business world, too. We've got Beijing's boxing match with big tech online gaming in the ring Tuesday, with state media calling it, as I mentioned there, spiritual opium. Plenty of parents, I think, would say gaming is addictive, Tencent, though, taking a 6% hit during Tuesday's trading session. All the details on that coming up. Plus, Robinhood's High Dive shares of the popular trading app approaching that $38 IPO price after last week's belly flop. And the U.S. debt ceiling dash also in focus. The Treasury now taking emergency steps to conserve cash as Congress dithers on raising the borrowing limit. In the meantime, on Wall Street, investors going for gold. Futures are higher in hopes amid hopes for a trampoline-like bounce after Monday's weakness. Sentiment was hit by a weaker-than-expected reading on U.S. manufacturing. Chinese factory growth also slowed to a 15-month low. And now they're facing COVID-driven restrictions once again as well. Europe, in the meantime, as you can see, trying to move higher there. The Satrodex under a little bit of pressure in Germany as big corporate names hit the earnings bullseye. Names like BP and Sockgen doing well. Car giant Stellantis also raising its full year guidance too. Asia, though, far from the winner's podium. Drugs, of course, are banned at the Olympics and nearly as addictive, according to Chinese state media. Online gaming may soon be curtailed in China, too. Let's get to the drivers on that story. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire, great to have you with us. And as I mentioned already, plenty of parents, I think, think that online gaming is degrees of addictive. The difference, of course, in China, when Chinese state media start shedding and throwing a spotlight on it, the instant reaction from investors is... They're next in line for regulation. And it's kind of what we saw overnight. Yeah, Julia, the context of this is absolutely key. It all started, of course, with with an article that was published in the Economic Information Daily, a business newspaper that's owned by the Xinhua News Agency, which is, of course, the the official news agency in China. So very much seen as having been either approved or having come from the government. This post, by the way, has now been removed, but it really spooked not only Tencent stock, uh, but other gaming stocks as well, the ADRs listed uh, in New York. So they called it spiritual opium. They called it an electronic drug. In this article, there were there was a line that said, insiders warn, walk watch out for the harm of online games. And they singled out Honor of Kings, which is one of the most popular games uh, produced by Tencent, an online game very popular on mobile. So, so that that is what happened. As I said, the post is now being removed. Uh, but clearly this is being read as the next installment in what we've seen over the past few months, Julia, the, the crackdown from the Chinese authorities 
on their tech sector, which the reasons for which have really run the gamut from antitrust and monopolistic behavior through to sort of cybersecurity and data concerns like we saw with Didi's food, the standards for food delivery workers, even uh, this profitability of the education sector, uh, which we saw last week. This has led to huge drops in the stock prices across China's tech sector. And the very big concern now is that gaming and entertainment will be next. So, uh, Didi, uh, sorry, um, uh, the the uh, the share price was down about six percent in Hong Kong today, and as I said, other gaming stocks followed. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in there. And to your point, there are those that look at this and say this is a wider crackdown of the control and the powers of big tech. But then there's a consumer element to all of these as well, as you mentioned. I mean, they're not the only nation that worries about the impact on their young people of constant gaming and hours sort of wasted away, wild away. I'll be careful how I say this on uh, on computer games just to pull this specific point. Um, What we've typically seen is that these big tech giants respond how has Tencent responded? Well, so the really interesting thing here, Judith, is that in 2019, after a previous crackdown by Beijing on, on video gaming, where they tried to reduce screen time for young people, they did introduce some restrictions. What Tencent has now done today uh, goes even further than that. A number of measures to reduce the amount of time minors spend playing these games. What they've done is they've said that they're going to limit screen time for people under 12 to an hour on, on weekdays and non-holidays and two hours on holidays. They're also going to, uh, they've banned in-game spending for people under 12, and they're calling for an industry-wide discussion on whether gaming for under 12s should be banned altogether. So this is really interesting. If you were in any doubt as to whether that article uh, in the Economic Business Daily uh, was sanctioned by the government, clearly Tencent isn't. They are going much further. This mirrors really what we've seen from other tech companies who've been the subject of a crackdown, the likes of Didi, you know, submitting willingly to the cybersecurity review. They don't put up a fight. They, they willingly accept any rules and regulations. Clearly, the Chinese Communist Party has immense power over these companies. And I think that's really behind what we've seen to be the, the sort of repricing of these tech stocks over the past few months. Absolutely. Great analysis. And we shall see where this goes. But to your bigger point here, I think the response that we seem to be getting from these big tech giants is um, fast and furious. I don't think they've made that into a movie, have they? It is a movie. They have made it into a computer game. Hmm. Klaus Martin, thank you for that. Now, speaking of an immediate response, the Chinese city of Wuhan is testing its 11 million residents for COVID-19 after finding its first infections in over a year. Seven cases were reported on Monday. Seven cases. China is grappling with an outbreak of the Delta variant that has now spread to at least 26 cities and 16 provinces. Stephen Zhang joins us now from Beijing. An immediate response and a significantly scaled response to Stephen. Talk us through this. That's right, Julia. The spread of this cluster really shows no sign of abating, hitting not only Beijing and Shanghai, as you mentioned, now Wuhan, the original epicenter of this global pandemic. And in that city, officials really, uh, just like their counterparts in many other locations, seem determined to err on the side of overcaution. That's why you see this citywide testing of 11 million people, despite a fewer than 10 cases being reported. We've actually also seen social media posts and videos of residents emptying supermarket shelves, stocking up on food and supplies 
device with their memories of the brutal three-month lockdown from 2020, obviously still very much raw. And officials in Wuhan and its surrounding regions have also asked residents not to leave town. And this is something uh, being increasingly echoed by authorities across the country in the middle of the peak summer travel season. We're really seeing local authorities here uh, reimpose some very draconian measures we hadn't seen for months, including strict lockdowns. And here in Beijing, for example, they have effectively banned people from so-called high or medium risk areas from entering the Chinese capital by suspending all transportation links to those regions. And now, of course, there are more than 110 such areas across China. So all of this really indicating the central leadership, the governments, uh, they're sticking to their current approach of zero tolerance towards locally transmitted cases, despite growing questions about its long-term sustainability, especially given the potential loss of billions of dollars of uh, revenues, uh, not only in tourism, but also in other industries as well. But Julia, for now, uh, in the words of one Beijing official, they're trying to prevent the further spread of this cluster at any cost. Julia? Yeah, I was looking at some of the comments over the weekend and one from a researcher at the um, CDC there in China telling reporters that breakthrough infections in vaccinated people are expected, which is I know much of the discussion that's going on elsewhere, at least in the West. What proportion, very quickly, Stephen, of people in China are vaccinated? And of course, we know that the efficacy rate, or we believe the efficacy rate of the Chinese vaccines is, is relatively lower. But what proportion of people have been vaccinated? Well, they've been touting the pace of vaccination, saying nationwide they have administered more than 1.6 billion doses. But given the large population base, obviously, the percentage of the population are being fully vaccinated, they still have a long way to go. As you mentioned, this cluster has called into question again the efficacy of their vaccines because a lot of the uh, newly infected patients actually have been fully vaccinated, including uh, staff members at several Chinese airports. But they have come out to defend their products to say it's too early to draw conclusions, but also pointing to some other countries that have used the Chinese vaccines to say it is uh, th- their vaccines are effective in dealing with even the Delta variant, especially in prevent deaths and severe cases. And the latest development, Julia, is the government has approved the use of one homegrown vaccine for minors aged between three and 17. So they are determined to uh, continue to push for more vaccinations across the country and across demographics. Julia. Yeah. Thank you very much for that, Stephen Jang. Great to have you with us. Okay, let's move on. Biles bounces back. U.S. gymnastics superstar Simone Biles has won bronze on the balance beam. She made the triumphant return to competition after withdrawing from other Olympic events, citing her mental health. Selena Wang is live in Tokyo. Selena, and I believe you were actually there watching her compete. How was that? Julia, it was incredible to be inside the Ariake Gymnastics Center. The energy there, the anticipation, it was palpable. There were so many nerves. I was nervous sitting on the edge of my seat, knowing what the stakes were here, Julia. It was her last chance to take home an individual medal at these games. And that is exactly what she did. She won a bronze. This was a victory. Her performance was an act of courage, perseverance. She has pushed through mental health challenges, what she's called the weight of the world on her shoulders. She is the only survivor of Larry Nasser's abuse competing at these games. And of course, she's also most recently been dealing with this mental block that gymnasts call the twisties. She said even just a few days ago that she was still struggling to orient herself in the air, that her mind and body were not sinking. But she said she was able to compete in beam because it involves less twisting and she changed her dismount to make it less risky. And despite, Julia, all of this anticipation, all of this pressure, she got on that four-inch beam, four-inch beam, 
and executed her performance with grace, with stability. And oh my goodness, when she got off, the crowd went wild. Of course, there are far fewer people in the stands than there would be at a normal games, but this was the largest amount of people I've seen at a gymnastics event yet. Journalists, delegates standing up, giving her a standing ovation. And Julia, this is what she said after she competed. She said, quote, It's been a very long week, a very long five years. I didn't expect to medal today. I just wanted to go out and do it for me. And that's what I did. It definitely feels more special. This bronze and the balance beam bronze at Rio, I will cherish it for a long time. And Julia, this is the seventh Olympic medal for Simone Biles. That puts her on par with Shannon Miller as a U.S. gymnast to have the most medals ever. But she had achieved so much. She had achieved something remarkable before she even got on that balance beam today. She had perhaps transcended her sport. She had sparked this global conversation about mental health. She illuminated the pressures that elite athletes face. And she showed the world that it is okay to put your own well-being above the expectations of others. Yeah, it gives me goosebumps, actually, just to hear all of that. The the win here was about way more than medals, but actually just coming back at the end there and competing and actually managing to win a medal. As I said at the top of the show, this bronze is worth its weight in gold and then some, not just for her, for many others, too, that she was fighting for here. Selena Wang, great to have you with us um, and great to be there, too. How amazing. Thank you. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Iran's supreme leader has given his confirmation to the man elected as the new president. Ibrahim Raisi will be sworn in on Thursday. He won a largely non-competitive presidential vote after key rivals were barred from the race. Fred Plekin is in Tehran covering the story for us. Fred, great to have you with us too. Um, What does Iran, under the influence of this president, look like compared to, of course, his predecessor, former President Mm. Rouhani? And um, I do have to say that the prospects of a return to the nuclear deal do certainly feel dimmer even than they were before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think the new uh, administration, Julia, they still want to rejoin, but they don't want to rejoin, but they want the nuclear agreement to come back and come back into full force and for the U.S. to rejoin. But certainly you are right. The whole parameters uh, really uh, will change and are going to change. On the whole, of course, we have to say that Ibrahim Rahisi is a lot more conservative than Hassan Rouhani was. But I think the biggest changes actually uh, are going to be in the sphere of economics. One of the places uh, where uh, Ibrahim Rahisi does have big credentials actually was in fighting corruption. He was, of course, until now, the head of the Iranian judiciary, of course, there was some controversy because pretty hard line in that as well. However, fighting corruption is something where he did try to make a lot of headway. And it was interesting today uh, at that uh, acceptance meeting that he had today with the Supreme Leader, fighting corruption was really very high on his agenda there. He said that's something that is very important here in this country. But if you look at the whole way that the economy is going to be conducted here in this country, there are some big changes that could happen. One of the things that we saw and we've been covering over the past really eight years since Hassan Rouhani has been in office, of course, Iran has been trying to get back into international uh, economics. They've tried to get foreign and direct investment here in this country. Of course, that's also part of what the uh, JCPOA, the Iran Nuclear Agreement, was in fact about. We uh, putting uh, Iran back into the international economy again, plugging it in again, getting sanctions relief. All that was stymied when President Trump came into office and he put in place those very tough sanctions. What Ibrahim Rahisi is now saying is that, yes, Iran still wants that sanctions relief, but they want the economy to become more self-reliant. The big term of that here is a resistance economy, so not relying in investment from 
Western countries, from foreign countries, even if the sanctions do get lifted. The economic sphere really is going to be very big. And as far as international politics is concerned, the two words that we keep hearing there is active and dynamic. Iran does want to play a very big role, not just in this region, but in global politics as well. Julia? And we shall see. Fred Plotkin, great to have you with us there in Tehran. Okay, a Belarusian activist living in Ukraine has been found dead at a park in Kiev. Vitaly Shishov was the leader of an organization helping Belarusians flee abroad. The group says he's been under surveillance before his death. Police are investigating all possible explanations, including that of murder. First responders in southern Turkey are battling devastating wildfires for a seventh straight day. Officials say the flames have been fueled by an intense heat wave that's gripping the eastern Mediterranean. Temperatures are expected to remain high throughout the week. Okay, still to come here on First Move, the $20 million hack. SolarWinds puts a figure on its cyber breach, but warns the final cost could be even higher. And one-way tickets only. The UK reopens to US travellers, but borders remain closed to those travelling the other way. I speak to the UK ambassador to Washington. Stay with us. That's next. Friends and family reunited. These are the emotional scenes at Heathrow Airport after the UK allowed fully vaccinated travellers from the United States and the EU to visit without quarantining. But you won't see anything like this across the Atlantic just yet, with the US keeping COVID travel bans firmly in place amid concerns about the Delta variant. The travel industry, however, is pressing the Biden administration to reconsider. For more, let's speak to the UK ambassador to the United States, Karen Pierce, who joins us live from Washington, D.C. Ambassador, fantastic to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time. I think most of the world is watching the UK's progress on reopening, even as we don't see uh, the reciprocal response here from, from the United States. Can I just ask from the UK's perspective, firstly, this is evidence, fact, data-based, this decision. Uh, yes, that's right. It is. Uh, we look at the data very carefully. Um, we take it very seriously. Uh, ministers consider the scientific evidence. Uh, we act according to that evidence. Uh, we've been able to open up because of the success of vaccines uh, in the UK. Ninety uh, percent of adults have double, uh, fully vaccinated and 70 percent of, I beg your pardon, 90 percent uh, have had one shot and 70 percent are fully vaccinated. Uh, so because of that, thanks to that, we've been able to ease restrictions. And yet when you look at the United States, it remains closed to, to inward visitors. For those living here too, without a green card or a passport, they have to quarantine in a nation like Mexico, for example, for, for a couple of weeks. Do you think their current stance and their decision lacks the same evidence, data, scientific analysis that, that the UK is applying here? Uh, no, I think the um, American system, the American authorities are using good data. You have very good scientists. Uh, you have CDC, uh, Dr. Fauci's analyses. We, um, to our scientists, talk to Dr. Fauci all the time. I think you have a different situation here in the United States. Uh, you have lower vaccine rates, for example. Uh, we would like to see the executive order lifted uh, so that Brits can come and go here. Uh, we're talking to the American government about that. Uh, we have a task force that we set up when President Biden visited the UK, and we continue to talk to them and to the airline industry uh, about trying to get a path to opening up. Do you have any sense of timing? Uh, I don't, I'm afraid. I, um, I wish I did, which is something that, that we talk almost weekly uh, to the US authorities. 
uh, and we continue to map out with them possible routes to opening up. But I can't put a time limit on it, I'm afraid. You know, we're foreigners in, in the United States and so we have a perspective both of a vaccine hesitancy in the United States relative to, to what we see and are seeing happen in the UK. What do you make of of some of the reticence to have vaccines here in the United States and the sort of available information that's out there that's quite frankly incorrect and spreads fear? Um, well, I think anything that, that spreads fear and is incorrect, particularly when it preys on people's worries about health. I mean, I think that's unconscionable. Uh, we, what people need to see is good scientific data uh, and people should trust these scientists who are trying to get the US back on track uh, after the pandemic. And CDC puts out very good guidance. Um, I think it is uh, a very well-renowned uh, organization. The WHO, the World Health Organization, works very closely uh, with CDC and with equivalent organizations uh, in the UK. But I think it is true that you have more vaccine hesitancy in the US than we see in the UK. And obviously what we're watching, certainly here, but again, I think around the world, is the fact that we saw that Delta-driven spike in, in UK COVID cases. And now we seem to see those cases coming down. I just wonder, among your discussions, and as you said, you're having them on a weekly basis, if not more, I'm sure, of, of why we think that's taking place in the UK, why those cases are coming down. It's a really good question. I think anecdotally, one would assume it's because of the very high rates uh, of vaccination. So you have a very high majority of people in the UK who have some protection uh, against the virus, uh, but we're not complacent. We need a lot more data before we can say for certain why the rates have come down dramatically. And what about the discussion about third doses? Potentially, it's obviously a debate that's being had in the United States, in, in the UK, Israel, of course, as well. And yet at the same time, and we talk about it on the show all the time, the fact that huge swathes of the rest of the world have not had any vaccines and are, and are desperate for them. Ambassador, where do you stand? It's a sort of an economics question. It's a moral question. It's a jobs-related question. Where do you stand on, on third vaccine doses? Uh, well, I'm not going to give uh, an opinion on that, I'm afraid. I'm not a qualified uh, doctor. Uh, the government is looking uh, at that prospect. Our health and science authorities uh, are looking at that and, and guidance will issue uh, in due course. But I do want to agree with you uh, on developing country vaccines. It was a huge priority at the G7 summit that the Prime Minister hosted in Cornwall in June. Uh, we, the UK, uh, have contributed to a billion uh, vaccine doses going to the developing world. Uh, it's not enough. Uh, we want to do much more. Uh, but we're working with our G7 partners, notably the US. Uh, President Biden has given a very strong lead on vaccines for the developing world. Uh, so we are trying to get those to them as fast as possible. It sort of feeds into the debate about eventually trying to open up the uh, the tourism routes and the travel routes, though, as well. And obviously, one of the things that the UK government's been grappling with is whether to introduce um, this amber phase to at least give travellers warning of a country that perhaps is going to join what they call the red list under the traffic light system, which then, of course, requires travellers to pay quarantine back in the UK. Um, what do you make of the decisions over that? Because clearly the government's trying to make it easier for people and to give them warning. But uh, there's some pushback from the industry, too. And of course, I know you're talking to industry on both sides of the water. Um, well, the government is, is trying to take uh, decisions based on the scientific evidence and is 
trying to enable people to reunite with their families uh, and businesses uh, to do their business internationally. And as with all these things, it, it's an intersection of getting uh, the right balance and following the scientific evidence. Uh, so the British government will continue to examine the evidence very carefully uh, and then we'll take uh, our decisions sequentially uh, based on that evidence. Yes, it continues to be day by day. Ambassador, fantastic to, uh, to have you with us. Thank you so much for your time today. Karen Pierce, UK Ambassador to the United States. Thank, Thank you. you once again for joining us. The market opens Thank next. You. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and Hippo Home Insurance winning the opening bell this morning. It feels like a long time since we've seen unmasked, smiling faces and uh, people behaving naturally on that bell. So good to see. U.S. markets are up and running this Tuesday and it's a high start across the board. Traders trying to shake off some of the early August angst that crept into the stock markets yesterday. But the spectre of more Chinese tech turmoil still weighing, I think, on sentiment as Beijing appears to target video game makers with new regulations, as we've discussed already on the show. In the meantime, sports apparel firm Under Armour, one of the big Wall Street winners in the early price action, shares sprinting ahead after a sporty earnings beat, a boost to its outlook from Under Armour too. And drink deal-making also helping juice up the markets. PepsiCo selling a controlling interest in its Tropicana brand to a private equity firm. Pepsi looking to focus on higher growth drinks. And for crypto investors, hoping they won't get squeezed by SEC Chair Gary Gensler. Bitcoin a little softer today as Gensler speaks at a securities forum. He said in a separate interview that more crypto oversight is required. He did not speculate, though, on when securities officials might rule on crypto exchange traded funds or ETFs. That will be a big one. Now, big tech is now so big that it's a risk to the global financial system. That's a warning from the Bank of International Settlements. It says the vast amount of data held by the likes of Google, Facebook, Alibaba and others means these companies could easily and rapidly reshape finance. And that could have a destabilizing effect on existing banking systems. The BIS says it wants to see regulators rein in big tech fast. And joining us now is the general manager of the Bank of International Settlements, Augustine Carstens. Sir, Fantastic to have you on the show. This was a fascinating new report. I read the entire thing yesterday. Can you start by explaining this specific fear, how we go from these big tech giants with access to huge volumes of data to potentially seeing entire banking systems destabilized? What's the key? Well, thank you very much for having me in your program, Julia. I think what the key issue is what we call it the DNA of uh, big techs uh, here in the BIS. DNA is data, net networks, and ad- additional activity. And the thing is that by the use of uh, data in an, a, a network network uh, environment, that can multiply the, the number of transactions that is being done through a particular payment service, and that will produce more information and it will produce more advantage. The real issue is that today, uh, commercial banks do not have a, a, a equitable access to all the information that uh, big techs have. And well, of course, big information is a key input into financial services. And therefore, if you have a larger or, or broader command on, of information, you will have a comparative advantage. So. 
this has a lot to do also with uh, who who has the control of the information of people. Uh, if, if, if so, what we are trying to to steer is a debate on how information should be used, who should have command of it, and in that way, I would say, uh, enhance com competitive competitiveness in in the future in the financial services industry. I mean, you use a specific example, and that's China, where we know two big tech companies. Um, Alibaba with Alipay and, of course, WeChat with WeChat Pay account for 94% of, of the payments market. And they scaled up incredibly quickly. Now, it's a completely different market to some extent than others like the EU and the United States. But do you see that specific um, number there is a reason perhaps why the central bank's looking at digital payments, looking at a digital coin, a central bank digital coin of its own, because that amount of power in the hands of private companies is frightening for any nation, China or anywhere else. Well, I, I would say that there are two big instruments that central banks and financial authorities have, but in particular central banks. That's a regulation. And the other thing is to provide central bank digital currencies. I think that it's very hard to imagine a world today uh, with all the cyber uh, currencies, cyber assets, and I would say the appetite of the public to have uh, digital solutions for transactions and not have central bank digital currencies. At the end of the day, I think that uh, reality will impose itself. And uh, what we are seeing today is a lot of drive by central banks to move forward with CBDC. Each country will take their own decisions, but this is a very important area. And the other is regulation. Uh, yes, uh, the, the, what you just said uh, in, in, at the outset uh, in this question is the tremendously fast progress that uh, big techs with financial uh, services, as financial services provider, can, can, can give. And, the, and, and I would say the unequal treatment from the point of view of regulation is what puts uh, commercial banks in a disadvantage. So what, what, we would, what we are really trying to, to put on the table is the need to have uh, equal treatment between di different providers of financial services. So if we take an example of the United States, I mean, you've got Google, you've got Facebook, you've got um, Amazon, for example, only really Apple Pay as an example for, for Apple is one that's really pushed into the payment space in some sort of fundamental way. Are you saying that regulators need to look at the activity level, look at the scale of data and sort of formulate regulation for entry for these tech companies, for example, before they try and go into the payment space in a more fundamental way? Because once they do it, they can scale up so quickly it then becomes really hard to tackle. Well, the issue of regulation is very complex. Uh, entry certainly is one. Uh, the, uh, in a way, for example, today to have a, a, a bank, uh, you need to have capital, you have to obey different rules on liquidity, leverage, and so on. That is something that at some point, given the, the different types of services that big tech, financial services that big tech might offer, it might be adequate to move in that direction. Uh, the other important in, important aspect, as I say, is, is the use of data. Today, banks have some very specific uh, regulation on how they can use data. Right. And that is not necessarily the case uh, with, with, with big tech. 
and, uh, and, uh, and, and, and uh, finally, uh, there is another important issue, and that is that many of these big techs provide some services that are, have, have become key in the financial sector industry, for, for example, uh, cloud services. So you have competitors also being important services providers for financial systems. So therefore, I think that there is, there is a lot of things that we need to think and to, to, to basically uh, have a system with three characteristics that is competitive, uh, that is safe, and that is respects privacy of people. Yeah, and the classic example of this is Amazon with their access into e-commerce the next step to payments and facilitating those e-commerce purchases would be very easy for them. The question is, to your point, is there a level playing field with what the banks can provide? And right now there isn't. Um, you know, there's a trust issue here as well. A lot of people don't trust big tech, but they don't trust governments, quite frankly, either. And um, that's part of why we've seen, I think, the interest in cryptocurrencies. And I saw back in January, you said, look, there's real risks here and that Bitcoin, for example, could go to zero. How do you feel about this today? And how do we separate all of these issues and make sure we get all of them right? The regulation in each sector, because there are those that say the most efficient way of using and facilitating payments in the future in the financial system is, is crypto. Where does the BIS stand on this? Well, where we stand here is that we need to certainly take advantage of all the technology that is out there. For example, the technology on, on which uh, Bitcoin is based, DLT and blockchain is a, a wonderful technology, and I think we need to adopt it. Now, the, the real issue is the application. I think that Bitcoin, in the way it was formed, uh, is not uh, is not really delivering what is supposed to deliver, which is a, a, a good substitute for cash. Uh, the, 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 it's not a good uh, deposit of, of value. It's not a good medium of exchange. Uh, it's hugely volatile. It's a, an ecological disaster. So uh, what we want to do is to apply, to use the technology and offer people a better representation of really trusted money, which what is the really trusted money that is out there? Well, it's basically cash. And today, today uh, cash uh, is just represented in papers and coins. And people are asking for digital solutions. And therefore, we have to raise to the challenge and provide them with uh, cash in the form, in the digital form. That also would facilitate many financial transactions. It would facilitate, uh, 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 you know, for example, to reduce transaction costs in cross-border payments. It would facilitate also e financial inclusion. We have many, still even in countries like the US, a high percentage of the population still doesn't have access to financial services. Right. And therefore, it would be interesting to look for something like this to uh, make a dent in that regard. You know, every time I think about the payment space and the future of payments, my head explodes because there's so many things to consider. And this was a whole new one, this report. Um, and I loved reading it. So come back and talk to us soon, please. Great to have you with us. Augustine Carstens, the general manager Thanks. of the Bank of International Settlements. Great to talk to you, sir. All right, coming up after the break. Thank you. SolarWinds reveals how much last year's massive hacking attack cost the company. We'll speak to the CEO next. Welcome back to First Move. SolarWinds, the tech company at the center of a global hack attack last year, says the incident cost it $20 million in the first half of this year. 
Hackers exploited lapses in SolarWinds system security to infect some 18,000 customers worldwide, including the U.S. Treasury. Joining us now is Sudhakar Ramakrishna. He's president and CEO of SolarWinds. So fantastic to have you on the show. And I know this announcement, just part of your earnings, which we'll talk about too. But let's just talk about the cost of the hack attack. Is that it? Is that the full cost or might those costs increase further? Julia, first of all, thanks for having me here. Uh, the $20 million that you mentioned is a part of the ongoing set of improvements and initiatives that we are expanding in in the context of what we call secure by design. As a result of the hack, we did have consultants and third parties work with us to address what happened and what lessons we can learn. But most importantly, we are investing in the future through our initiatives called Secure by Design. As we evolve from a company that was building powerful and simple solutions to a company that delivers powerful, simple, and secure solutions. So you said it's part of the ongoing cost of upgrading your systems. And I know you weren't, of course, the CEO when this hack attack happened. And you've come in and said, look, we're going to put our best foot forward and we're going to tackle a lot of these things. How great might those costs be? And, and can you give us a sense of what they are? What does beefing up security, tackling some of the weaknesses that you identified, cost in practice? Because this is practical and an issue for many companies that are facing the threat of cyber attacks. Absolutely. Think of the $20 million that we mentioned as an ongoing part of our business into 2022 and beyond. There are three key elements of what we call secure by design. One is enhancing the security of our internal infrastructure itself. So, for instance, things like uh, zero trust solutions, endpoint detection solutions, and so on. Second is to enhance the security of the build systems themselves, which includes um, new software to provide specific permissions and isolation of our build systems. And the third one, which is the most important in my opinion, is to improve the integrity of the supply chain itself, the software supply chain. Here's where we have invested quite a bit and innovated in building secure software build processes and we hope to make them a standard in the industry. So one of the things that I was determined to do is not only are we going to improve our environments, but we belong to a community that is necessarily focused on the safety and security of all of us because no single company is capable, regardless of the sources that it has, as well as the competencies that it possesses to protect itself all by itself. So we are planning to share our learnings and findings and our research to the broader community through the Secure by Design initiative. I mean, I think for all of those that were looking at this, the, the hack itself was incredibly sophisticated. The initial entry wasn't and there were systemic failures, whether it was an intern with a password or a lack of steps of, of verification. Can you look at your systems now, particularly in light of how high profile we now know your clients are? all sways of the government, the Pentagon, for example, just in the United States alone and say something like this can never happen again at SolarWinds. Can you guarantee nothing like this will ever happen again at SolarWinds? I wish I could state that about SolarWinds or for that matter about any company out there, Julia. As you know, unfortunately, all we can do is continue to learn and constantly be on vigil. So the operative phrases that I use internally are constant vigil and constant learning. 
So we've invested a lot, both our internal resources as well as third parties, to comb through our systems, comb through our environments, and have no evidence of any threat actor being in our network at this point in time. At the same time, we have shared all of our learnings very transparently with both the authorities as well as our industry peers so that they don't have to go through the same predicament that we went through. So this is very much a community vigil activity, as I like to describe it. And while we constantly have to learn from one another and share the knowledge, I would say there's no guarantees that this will never happen, be it for SolarWinds or for that matter, any company out there. Yeah, it's why everybody has to be so vigilant, because you can't make that promise even today with with what you know and what you've been through. Um, As I mentioned, what made you so alluring was your client list, um, large firms, state institutions around the world. What are they saying to you? Have you had any contracts that have not been renewed or is it too early to say a client staying with you or have you lost some? Uh, as you stated, we just are coming out of our earnings, uh, Julian. Mm. I'm pleased to say that our customer retention rates are ahead of the pacing that we predicted at the beginning of the year. Right. Uh, that is, I would say, a testament to our employees who are super committed to customer success, as well as the relevance of our solutions to customers. Equally, many of our customers are also developers of software. So when they see a supply chain attack like this uh, being inflicted upon somebody like SolarWinds, they can also visualize and imagine that they could be next as well. So in many ways, it has created a greater collaboration with our customers where we are able to transparently share our learnings and findings. And that's actually given the level of trust a boost, I would say, from a customer standpoint towards SolarWinds. Do you think from a corporate risk perspective that ransomware payments should be illegal or should companies be allowed to make a choice in these circumstances when they're when they face a demand from a hacker? Should they still be allowed to make the decision or should those be made illegal in your mind? Sadaka? I'll give you my uh, perspective. Um, Nobody should be in an unfortunate situation to have to pay ransomware. But in many cases, you cannot generalize and have a one size or one rule fits all because of the criticality of businesses and the timeliness of having to respond. Uh, In some cases, the most prudent and the safe thing to do might be to actually pay and get on to the next level. But this is a larger topic that needs better regulation, better support across both the public and the private sectors such that we can continue to reduce and strive to eliminate the situations that we are all in from a position of having to pay ransom there. It's part of the problem here. There's no easy answers. Um, Sadek, I have about a minute left. What more does Congress need to do to help support companies and face this threat, whether it's tackling Russia or China, those that have been accused of being behind some of these recent attacks? Uh, I've dealt with a number of um, members of Congress, senators, Mm. congressmen, and others. Uh, What I have been urging for is tighter public-private partnership, specifically not creating a victim-shaming environment, where victims must be encouraged, I would say, to come out and share their breaches and knowledge. Because in this particular case, the adversaries have tremendous resources and no scruples. 
in our case, we have to follow all, all of our regulations. So one thing that I would encourage Congress to do is provide support air cover regulations that encourage people to speak up more and be more transparent, as opposed to hold information, delay, and suffer more in the future. Yeah, transparency and swift communication when once something like this happens or is discovered. So fantastic Absolutely. to have you with us. Um, thank you for joining us and talking about your earnings and hopefully we'll speak to you soon. The President and CEO of SolarWinds says Sudhaka Ramakrishna. Thank you. More to first move after the break. We'll be back. Welcome back to First Move with a quick final look at what we're seeing in terms of early price action. And after a higher start, U.S. stocks have turned slightly lower. Airlines and other reopening names pulling back on Delta variant concerns. Not helping sentiment too. Alibaba shares also moving lower. The Chinese tech giant reporting weaker than expected sales growth as it faces increased competition from firms like JD.com. Of course, similar story with Amazon, of course after the uh, splurges that we saw throughout the pandemic, recovering and uh, competing with the prior year is tough. Now, watch out SpaceX. Boeing set to launch its long-awaited Starliner spacecraft on an uncrewed test flight to the International Space Station. It's being called Boeing's answer to SpaceX's Crew Dragon, which has already begun carrying astronauts. The Starliner launch comes after a botched first attempt a year and a half ago. A mishap last week involving a Russian module on the ISS delayed the second mission. All being well, the Starliner should dock on Wednesday. Fingers crossed for that. Third time lucky. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe, connect the world. With Becky Anderson is up next and we'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.